0: Hello, everyone, and bienvenidos to a special bonus episode of the Paseo Podcast. This is the first time I am posting something like this, and you'll notice it sounds a bit different than what I normally do. That's because I'm not the one doing the interviewing this time. Sometimes with our bonus content, I may be the one interviewing, I may not be the one interviewing. Either way, it's going to be quality stuff. So instead of me interviewing a guest... This bonus episode is a conversation I recorded at an event in the National Museum of Puerto Rican Arts and Culture between Yarimar Bonilla, professor and founder of PR Syllabus, and person Rosana Rodriguez of the 33rd Ward here in Chicago. This conversation was focused on the recent release of the book that Yarimar assembled. It's titled Aftershocks of Disaster, Puerto Rico Before and After the Storm. Okay, enough of me talking. Let's join the conversation.
1: While she was studying at the University of Chicago, on weekends, Yadimar was here doing all kinds of things, including engaging in the most amazing of Puerto acts, which is to sell lottery tickets in a community store that we drive enterprise and the problem is that the people that buy the tickets are really who sells the ticket is really important so Yarimar had to win the hearts and minds of all these Puerto Ricans who would then line up to get the lottery ticket with Yarimar every Friday, and they only wanted Yarimar to sell them so, this is who Yarimar is. Besides being an amazing intellectual, an amazing student and disciple of one of the greatest thinkers, I think, to come out of the Caribbean, Michel Rolf Toujou, who, by the way, if you haven't read his book, you need to, he has got several, but his most important to me is Silencing the Past. It's an amazing book about and new ways of organizing, and creative ways of organizing a people after such an incredible disaster, not only of Maria, but of the Junta, that is ruling Puerto Rico. So for me, I am extremely honored to be able to welcome Yadimar here. Share some ideas with another young, dynamic Puerto Rican woman, Rosanna Rodriguez, who is uh, an alderman in the city and won an amazing election by doing some real good uh, grounds, really grounded work in the community. So um, I think this is going to be a really, really wonderful conversation. I want to say that Gadimar, in our first book, uh, that deals with sort of a new vision of sovereignty. By the way, today, as a historian, you should know that today is the anniversary. October 24, 18, 1648, the Treaty of Westphalia was signed. And it ended to what was known as the Holy. system of governance and emergence of the nation state and sovereignty when we speak about sovereignty is deeply rooted in that um, practice of the nation state but i would be remiss if i didn't um cite a very wonderful part of this book um by um by monica he and she writes looking Titled Looking for a Way Forward in the Past: Lessons from the Puerto Rican Nationalist Party. And I found this so amazing because she ends it with this. 86 years later, she writes, she, 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 like, it has been 86 years since Alviso Campos wrote to Martinez Nadal, calling on him to halt. Puerto Rico's debt payments and indicting the predatory nature of the U.S. banking system. 86 years later, Puerto Ricans are regularly taken to the streets, to to social media, and to La Fortaleza, the Puerto Rico governor's mansion, to demand the very things that Albiso called in the 1930s. Alviso Campos warned us not to be law into believing that the US could offer the island something other than colonialism. Despite the intervening years, the apparent changes in Puerto Rico's political status, and in the face of the devastation brought by Hurricane Irma Maria, Alviso Campos' warning brings toward today than it did even in the late '40s when the iron was was with the possibilities of Estado Libre Asociado. mine I have to give, uh, and I don't know who to give it to, but I have to say one thing—a little regalito to. Um, um and i rarely do this to yariman but the only thing that i found missing in this book is obviously the Puerto rican diaspora's voices in relationship to what happened after maria i just want to say that it was chicago that sent the first airplane that landed in puerto rico right after the hurricane and took over a hundred thousand dollars worth of first aid and food we brought 300 people stranded in the airport of Puerto Rico and since then we've done an amazing job through the three hours of Puerto Rico I just wanted to put that up a little bit but let's give a welcome
2: Right, and that's how my community survives. So that's one of the reasons why I'm here today, talking to you about this. is really close to my heart, um, and and uh, I just I just want to share that so that you have a little bit more context about me. Uh, So why the title? So um, the book began at a conference
3: that I what? I don't know. If it's, it's been made. Oh, wait, it's this jostles that kept happening, um, and in fact, you know, now we know that the majority of people who lost their lives, they didn't lose their lives to the wind and the rain, they lost their lives to everything that happened, and all the failures, and all the structural violence that, you know, followed the, the, the storm. And further, I like, I nerded out and started reading about earthquakes and aftershocks, because, you know, I. Later, that after the phenomenon, the scientists decide which is the main shock. Because the first one, in, in terms of time, is not necessarily the strongest one. And there's this idea of, of, of four shocks to come. And so part of what I wanted to leave open to the reader to decide for themselves which is the main shock. Is Maria the main shock, or is Maria itself an aftershock of a deeper colonial history? And we think about Maria in in relationship to everything that preceded it, and also to think about how Maria is still ongoing. So I I felt that this this kind of concept that comes from a a different kind of of disaster um, helps us think about the temporality of disasters and how difficult it is to say when they begin and when they end, and how we we still, two years out, still feel in it and can still feel at any moment another shock arrives.
2: That's awesome, uh, that, that concept, right? Because we have, we have been thinking a lot about colonialism, but also we have been thinking a lot about how And we have been thinking a lot about debt. And we've been thinking a lot about, yes, um, when we think about colonialism, when we think about the domination right, of, of the United States over Puerto Rico, um, one of the things that we have been thinking a lot about, and right before Maria hit, was that Puerto Rico was in a very fragile state. Right? Like our infrastructure had not been given maintenance. Uh, we are living in a completely aus- a complete situation of austerity. Um, people were already migrating, right? Um, and coming to the US. So can you talk a little bit about that 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 shock?
3: in the book and also in you know this is an edited collection there's also a self you know self authored book that i'm working on as well and trying to think about how the debt crisis in puerto rico's colonial history had sort of set the stage for everything that happened during maria so you have um first of all an economy completely oriented towards the outside um an agriculture that had been uh, neglected in favor of importing products, right? And so uh, a, a population that was made vulnerable and that was made of an, in, an, unable to be sustainable and self-sufficient. And so then you have this crisis where, uh, you know, courts are shut down and, and people don't have access to all these goods that they're dependent on that are imported. At the same time, The budget that had already imposed uh, austerity measures. Although it's important to say that those politics also preceded the board. Um, and you had so you had neglected infrastructure, uh, you know, uh, antiquated uh, electricity system, a water system that was already you know losing you know I can't remember the, like sixty percent of its water. You had already had droughts in Puerto Rico. You had an environmental crisis that was like you know floating around in the air and so uh, i i i just wrote a column this week for and i thinking about the difficulties of life in puerto rico and how we how we have these these mysteries of environmental damage these unexplainable asthma rates that are you know disproportionate even in the diaspora among puerto Ricans. it's some like medical mystery and so we had all all this vulnerability many of it mm-hmm. created none of it being attended to you know, a Category 5 hurricane that arrived in the wake of another Category 5 hurricane because it's important to remember that Muddy was the second of two back-to-back storms. Um, so all of, this set, all of this set the stage for the precarity that was experienced. But the other thing that it also set the stage for was for the kind of forced resilience that was expected of the population because in the face of incredible state retreat, lots of Puerto Ricans decided that they needed to plan for themselves, that they needed to engage in and, and to, you know, figure out how to do things for themselves. And so the mentality that there was a bankrupt state that was already incapable of attending to its citizens and the sense that already uh, infrastructure was going to be cut, public services were going to be cut, it made it so that people didn't expect much from the local government. the political consequences of the hurricane and I feel like it wasn't until this summer that I felt that that was like and uh, made any sense because when I first arrived I wanted to see how the hurricane would shift Puerto Rican's political attitudes um, and what I found in the early days uh, was that people didn't shift their attitudes so the people who were already pro-independence they said you see, this is why we need to be independent of course FEMA paper towels whatever you know uh, the people the best we can do is the end. already had, um, but I think it's that it took it took two years, you know, for for you know the kind of uh, the, the resilience narrative to kind of turn into something else. And I think that that resilience eventually yes? Yes? No. no. Yes. Yes. The, the the light is on but it works in the specific um, Yeah. 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 So, Of where Ricky, the, the Ricky Renuncia movement begins and ends, because it, it goes back to the to the mutual aid societies, but those in turn go back to the 2010 strikes, and those in, ten, in turn go back. Right, so it's these you know legacies of activism that are also. <coughs> Networks that have been put into place suddenly we become activated, and so in the in, in the two years after Maria, I was I was actually really concerned about the, the extreme levels of self-reliance. You know, this was like some American gladiator style of self-reliance in Puerto Rico, uh, where people were just going completely off the grid, and not just in their homes, but also in their communities. I you know I met people even in Santurce who were putting up solar. Solar, solar and I said, you know, there's something beautiful about this, but there's also something that troubles me about you know continuing to pay the highest sales tax in all of the United States while not demanding anything of that state and letting that state, A, be completely at the service of Wall Street, and B, focus all of its energies also then on wooing investors and wooing um, a new population to come to Puerto Rico. it was becoming a kind of neoliberal resilience that just aided the the retreat of the state Um, but but at the same time i saw that for a lot of the people involved in these movements it was really meaningful to them and it actually represented a, a decolonial form of resilience and the search for a kind of sovereignty El diablo, and diablo conocido is you know the devil you know is better than any other devil, right? Yeah, what I'm and so and so because it, it actually is it takes a lot to say get rid of Ricky and we don't know who's gonna come next. It could be it, it could it could have even been a federally appointed, uh, you know, easily. yeah, easily, easily, and I, there were like a series of um, uh, editorials in the New York Times and in the Washington Post that said much that, that, that there needed to be more federal control, and that this was a way of like you know taking care of the colony. So I think it, 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 we shouldn't reduce the, the, the courage it took to say you know out, even though we don't know what's coming next, you know. And so um, I, I think it was that resilience that was, that in many ways, the government profited from, which then eventually backfired and um, led to to
2: the, you know their own removal from power to do with the it has to do with trauma it has to do with the anger um, cuz i feel like after you are forced to bury your dead with your own hands after you are forced to see the corpses of the people that you love not being able to be buried because there's not the structures to do that and then have a governor make fun you're dead. I think I think what that does to you, as a people, is, I mean, there's a moment when you just snap, right? So I think that the resilience was a part of it. Like, we already did it, right? Like, we did the impossible with nothing. We only had each other. And then we went through all of this pain and all of this suffering together, no, you're out. We are going to get you out. Um, So I know that there is um, a beautiful chapter in the book about trauma and about about that kind of mental health care. Um, Can you talk a little bit about trauma? Can you talk a little bit about about that shock? Yeah, yeah.
3: So there's actually a few a few contributions that I think speak to this. First, there's the dialogue I have with Naomi Klein where we talk about, you know, I, I, I tell her, you know, she has this amazing concept of the shock doctrine and, and how in these moments, you know, of, of crises created and political, economic, <coughs> environmental, you know, there is, you know, suddenly things can move and, and, and shift and, and, and profiteering has, you know, a chance to really thrive. Um, But I told her that what I felt I was seeing in Puerto Rico was not shock. People were not shocked. They expected the government to not work, right? And so what was in fact there was a level of trauma because you had um, this crisis happening on top of the, the debt crisis that had already created a state of emergency. Already created the conditions for disaster capitalism to to you know come in. They were already going to privatize uh, the electric company. You know a lot of and the and the governor said as much in these investor conferences that I uh, attended, where he would say you know we can now accelerate our processes and put into place what we were already working with. So imagine like having already a, a state of emergency and then you get a double down on that state of emergency. So I think, and so there's that chapter that kind of thinks about that in a kind of abstract and and, and global way. Um, And then there's the the whole section on narrating trauma is is really interesting to me, partly because and and, you know when I organized the conference at Rutgers that you know resulted in the book, it was really important for me to not have a bunch of egghead academics but to have activists, writers, artists, and, 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 we, and the, the book begins with a play. We began the whole conference with a play, um, and I that, that wanted to make sure that we were not thinking about this in a cold, detached way, but that we were really um, letting ourselves experience you know, the, all of this because everyone at that conference was traumatized, you know, and a lot of people who presented their voices were shaking, you know, and, the, and there was this difficulty of narration. Um, that I think uh, emerges in the text. Some of them are not straightforward narratives. There's um, one of my favorites is Sofia Gallisa's that contribution. that's a series of lists that she posted on Facebook or wrote down. The, the, the picture in the beginning is, is the little notebook that she carried and like got all wet. Um, there's a, a, an entry that's like, this was meant to be a diary, but it, it never became a diary because she went off to stand in line for, for water, etc. Um, and there's the the entry by Benjamín a journalist in Puerto Rico who talks about his frustration, or, or I don't know if that's the right word, but. Um, Interviewing survivors immediately after the storm and their inability to feel anger to, you know, they would just say, I'm okay, it's fine. And this is something that everyone, you know, first of all, Estoy bien, you know, which then became like a, a Bad Bunny song and everything, you know, like that was the, the what everyone would say. And it was loaded because it, it could mean, Estoy bien could just mean I survived, you know, I'm alive and my house is but I'm okay, or I buried my family, but I'm okay. Um, and there, there was that, and there was also every, everyone I would talk to, and, and Benjamín and others that you know, were doing research during this time as well, we found that everyone would say, oh, no, no, just bien. The ones that are not doing well are the ones in the mountains. Or, no, no, los de vieques, they're the ones that are really not well. No, tú sabes lo que están bien los de la diáspora. Because you know, they're suffering because they're so, you know, uh, they're removed from all of this and they can't talk to us. So there was this this, you know, this, this kind of uh, inability to really grapple with all this and a kind of reluctance also to, to, to be kind of, um, to take care of yourself and think about yourself. And so then later in the book there is a, a chapter by uh, psychologist and, and, and Professor Patricia Noboa where she talks about her experiences setting up a clinic in a community that is both a psychological clinic and a legal aid clinic because she recognizes that people need and want both and and, and and this goes with my experience too like most of the people that I interviewed I would one of the things I would ask them is if they thought that they were experiencing depression or anxiety and disproportionately, yes. Have you sought out help? Disproportionately, no. Um, so, you know, in, in the midst of everything that is happening, people need to deal with their FEMA documents, they need to get their property titles, they need to do all these things. They don't
2: have time to go to therapy. And without so, power, and without phones, and we help, yeah. you just have to get it done, but you don't have
3: Um, Patricia, the clinic that she volunteered at it combined these services, and then she talks at, I mean, I since, I since that's not my field, I, I'm really interested in it, and I, to think about how, you know, how can we listen, you know, like the power of listening, and, and, and of, but of also pushing back on what people say, you know, so she, she writes very powerfully about how people would, would say something, and she would say, is that so? You know, like, I'm." Is that so? Are you okay? You know, and to just to the how, how, how to like think about working with you know trauma survivors and helping them you know push through the, the, these emotions while at the same time managing all these real material conditions. Um, so I think yeah I think that, that that you know the idea of trauma and now it's not just also um, the hurricane trauma but the colonial trauma as well. The, I I also really like the uh, the journalists who talk about how they want to depict you know, the, the, the folks that they're that they're interviewing and how they want to show, I mean not interviewing but representing, right? And how they want to show not just Maria, but a, a deeper history. Um, Chris Gregory who has images in the book at the conference, he, he, he didn't uh, submit this for the book but at the conference he paralleled his um, photography of Maria with a, a photo project he has about Las Carpetas. And about prosecution and, and surveillance in Puerto Rico. And to me, it was really poignant the way he, he made uh, these connections, you know, about how to visually represent, you know, these political processes. Um, so I think that, you know, through, throughout, and with the play as well, which is so important to me, because um, I had seen it and, and I had cried, but I also what I really loved about the play was that it was really funny. Because I feel like so much so many representations of Puerto Ricans after Maria is like just people in sweated homes and, you know and the suffering that was experienced was very real, but you know, at the same time, Puerto Ricans continue being full humans who are also hilarious and trifling and annoying and you know,
2: and erotic and, and all of it. You know, I think laughter is one of our favorite ways to deal with pain and to deal with anything that is hard for us. We laugh. I I, I at least feel like that is, the, that is what I have always seen in my community. Uh, which sometimes is it, weird for other <laughs> for other people. Um, but definitely, I, I, I can see how our laughter, our sense of humor <coughs> saved a lot of us from despair, right? And approaching everything that was happening with, with that spirit. Um, you were talking about trauma and I was thinking one of the things that I feel like saved a lot of people was the fact that there was a space to come together. And after the hurricane happened, um, the community kitchen was created and people started coming and cooking. And then they didn't want to leave because that was their therapy. That was, I mean, they were doing work that was incredibly valuable. They were feeding hundreds of people every day. But even when things started becoming like more normal, which It was never so, and it's still, it's not completely normal. My community was without power for 11 months. There's no power for 11 months. There was no running water for at least six months. Mm -hmm. Um, So nothing was normal, but even when people just started like going back to their homes, people didn't want to leave the space because they were together, because it was this togetherness that kept people um, engaged, that kept people with, I mean, you don't have power to go watch TV. All of a sudden, there was community outside. There were things happening outside. People didn't want to be inside because it was hot. Um, so this, the outside space became that place, right? Um, so in terms of togetherness, I feel like that was that was something that saved a lot of people um, from, from themselves, right? Like A lot of people that died in Puerto Rico died because of suicide and places that had a lot going on, that was a lot less self because people felt accompanied, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I just wanted to make that comment because I, I feel like um, like trauma has been dealt with in so many different ways in, in Puerto Rico. Um, I wanted to talk about art. You were mentioning the the theater play, but there's poetry in this yes. book as well, and uh, there's there's such a chapter on aesthetics, right? And I wanted you to. Talk a little bit about our interface of the past. Okay. Yes. And, and what an appropriate
3: place to <laughs> um, So in the book we have a play, we have photojournalism, we have a uh, visual artist. Oh, um, uh, one of them. ¿Cómo um, se llama? That was here in Chicago. Este, ay mi madre me va matar. Richard. <laughs> Richard. Gracias, Richard. Tiago. like his artist's name is Tiago, uh, he talks about his experiences of displacement and. and so, me en Chicago en el libro. Dice que no. Este. And so, Richard talks about his feelings, as, you know, as experiences of artists from Puerto Rico displaced to the diaspora and and the kind of work that that you know, led him to do, but also just, again, the. That, that same difficulty of narration, you know, that is a kind of dif- difficulty of depicting, you know, and, and so what <coughs> that led him to. Um, Adrian Viajero has this like beautiful piece about um, he's a he's a diaspora artist from New York who went to Puerto Rico to help and, and, and be in solidarity, but also created artwork from, you know, his, he recreated his grandmother's house that was blown away by the hurricane and also created art pieces you know, of, of people's belongings that are found. And then we also have two essays from curators um, talking about the the variety of artwork that was being produced. And um, particularly in the, in the case of, of Marianne Ramirez, when uh, she talks about, uh, who's the curator of the Museum of Contemporary Art, she talks about art also during the debt crisis, and so she takes that longer view. Um, and um, but the, the other piece, but Carlos Rivera Santana is about exactly the, the aesthetics, and, and he, he focuses more centrally on art after Maria, and how, you know, what, what kind of modes of representation can we utilize to think about catastrophe and, and, and all, all these um, processes. So that's the kind of visual art, and then there's also poetry, which we, we were, um, and I have to say, you know, I co-edited this, this book with my, with my colleague, uh, Marisol Lebron, who has her own book out, and I know she presented it here in Chicago. About policing in Puerto Rico, and um, she with with her we added the whole chapter on capitalizing on the crisis. She invited Monica Jimenez, who I know of course. Jose picked the one historical uh, piece in the book, um, and she also um, was in charge of inviting the poets to, to contribute. And we wanted we didn't want to have the poetry sectioned off, um, but rather sprinkled throughout we wanted to see it as a mode of contributing and thinking about these different themes. Um, so that was theme that was really important to us. Um, and so I think, yeah, I think that that's like the, the different ways the arts
2: are, are woven through the text. I feel art was also very healing um, and it was used as a tool in Puerto Rico after the hurricane Molly Crab Apple came to my yeah. community. And she started going around my community and drawing people and people's faces. Um, she would just go to like the corner bar and sit with the people there that were like drinking or spending the day and make portraits. And then those became murals in the community. Um, my community did this uh, mutual aid uh, center and it was in an abandoned school, which is the school that I went to and my brothers went to as well as, like grammar school. And that place now has lots of murals of people in the community. Um, uh, doing the things that they were doing cooking uh, rebuilding um, and it, it is very beautiful for people to for people to have that right for people to see themselves um, see their images uh, it just brought all of this life um, to the community and it was it was very healing um, can we talk a little bit about um, about the after crisis right about after we have seen what, have been, what we have been seeing after, right? We have um, all these people that have come to invest in Puerto Rico and have, like, you know, a, a party with the with the with the mystery um, that that we have. While well, Puerto Ricans have had to leave, yes. Puerto Ricans have had to become separated from their families. Yes. Um, there has been a lot of interruption in our lives, but there are voters, and there's people who have the means to come. And, and the tools because our government has given them the tools to come and take whatever they
3: want, right? And so can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so um you know, it shows up a little bit in the conversation mm-hmm. with Naomi. I coincidentally in my in my the class that I'm teaching this semester about Puerto Rico Maria, where we use aftershocks as a textbook. Um we talked just this, this week about the the crypto uh, currency and the, the crypto world, the block the blockchain movement. Um, uh, we read the first New York Times article that had kind of broke the story about this. These people. Um, and I will say it was refreshing to revisit that um, because most of those initiatives have failed, you know. So everything that they talked about, there—the Puerto Topia, the Sol, you know—all um, the, the, the kind of Pierce, piers, uh, different um, shenanigans, you know—they, I think, when they first showed that people didn't know what what this was all about, etc. Um, but they have been met with a lot of resistance, so I, and I'm. I'm there's lots of different people arriving in Puerto Rico because there's also the, the people who are benefiting from the 2022, the people who, who, who might be moving to the island and are just buying up property, buying up Airbnbs from afar. Um, so but this, at least in terms of this, uh, in, in Naomi's uh, book, um, she talks, of, you know, the battle for paradise, right? Like she, she represents these kind of two uh, factions, you know, at war. And I do think that in terms of the, this kind of technology-led um, initiative, I, 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 think that that at least everything they've tried so far hasn't worked. And they were like kicked out of San Juan, and then they tried to go to Mayagüez. Mayagüez were like no, and so, um, and I She's a documentary now, um, and initially she thought it would really center around them, um, but I, I just saw the rough cut, and it's it's so like a small proportion of this larger story in the film, and I think that that is, you know, that's how it feels. Like, it's just like one part of like a million other crazy things that are going on, including the Clinton Foundation, and you know, all this philanthropy, capitalism also, and. Uh, and, or disaster philanthropy, that's, um, that's I have, I'm writing something with a friend about this, um, and um, so I think, you know, it was definitely a piece of the story, and for, for a moment it felt a little bit scary, like, like really intense, they were buying up a lot of properties, and and the, the governor, you know, he, he said, oh, our recovery is going to be led by blockchain. Whether or not he knew what that meant is unclear, <laughs> but but I I I don't I, at least I don't see that kind of overt you know uh, wooing of the, the technology bros at least. Uh, of course, the, the 2022 community is still very active. Um, they I was I was watching with concern how they were talking about the protest of the summer. Um, some of them thought it was great because they're like, oh, this is like when a company gets a new CEO and you can rebrand, you know? Mm. Um, so, you know, these things can go in, in all sorts of different ways and, and different actors have different interests. But I think that the movement of the summer, um, you know, I hope pushed uh, all the politicians, I don't know if it pushed them to the left or if, it, my, my hope is that at the very least, you know, the, the, the popular assemblies and these new democratic movements can make it so that there is a different mm-hmm. series of, 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 of kind of points, you know, agenda points that all politicians now have to speak to. And I, I think we already saw that in the last election. In 2016, it was the first year after the imposition of Promesa and the fiscal board and, and the, the Supreme Court cases that have been heard where the, the, U, the U.S. government said openly that Puerto Rico did not have sovereignty 2016 was the first electoral year in Puerto Rico where gubernatorial candidates were asked what they were going to do with the colonial situation, not whether they thought it was a colonial situation. And so a language that, that used to only be used by the pro-independence, you know, left, or etc., in Puerto Rico, has now become commonplace. And, and, and a lot of people have come to a new understanding of Puerto Rico as being a colony. Yeah, I've interviewed folks who, who were in the ELA and they said you know I, I feel like I was lied to. I was told we weren't a colony. Mm-hmm. You no know, I thought we weren' I thought we were an you know? <laughs> we And so so I think a lot of folks uh, you know uh, have, have come to, to kind of have to have had to grapple with that and the federal response has also you know made it very clear. I mean that's that's one of the great things about Trump is that he says the quiet parts out loud. And so now, you know, we, we all kind of see what, what has been the U.S. relationship to Puerto Rico since way before Trump, but he has just done the done us this great favor of putting it all on blast, you know? Um, and of also bringing a media spotlight to that situation because when, when has the U.S. media ever covered Puerto Rico's, you know, lack of services or infrastructural crises before, before Trump? So, um, so I think that you know, there's definitely a lot of political shifts that are still, you know, un- underway in Puerto Rico. And
2: how do you feel like the work of people are now? Big? So after after the summer, we just had like an incredible uprising. People felt really empowered. People actually won. Puerto Ricans kicked the governor out. Yes. Like that is incredible. That's why I did my bachelor's degree. I, I feel like I was on strike probably like 70% of the time <laughs> that I was a student at the University of Puerto Rico, and then I became a teacher I went on strike a lot as well. So uh, most of my life in Puerto Rico was fight and strike, right? And uh, and I was a part of like incredible fights, like La Huega de La Telefónica against privatization and the fight um, to keep the Navy out of Vieques. And I and when when this happened, just like I have never witnessed like, a Category 5 hurricane. All of a sudden everybody was in the streets trying to kick the governor out and I mean I, I cried a lot that I was not in Puerto Rico to experience that um, and now we so so the people of Puerto Rico were able to get rid of the governor and now we have won that, whatever um, where are we politically right now in terms of, of possibility I mean
3: it's, it, it's... It's a time of, 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 of possibility, which is also a time of risk and a time of uncertainty. You know, so I think um, I, I was recently in Puerto Rico on my on my media tour and, and uh, you know uh, 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 launched the book there and was on the radio and a lot of the local journalists were asking me, so what's going to happen? I'm like, I don't know, <laughs> you know? Right. um But I, but what I do know is that I think a lot of Puerto Ricans. You know, Francis Maria, and then intensified after Ricky Renuncia. You know, they're they're sick of the political parties, but they also, I think, have come to realize that that's not where politics happens. You know, in Puerto Rico, like the, the same old folks have been voted in and out, and nothing has changed. And so, a lot of the young people that I interviewed, they said, we're we're not going to be duped like our parents were. You know, like our parents were told they had been decolonized, and they were not. Um, our parents these political parties that would bring about the political status that they wanted, and they did not, you know, and so we are not going to let you know our our hopes of, of for decolonization or status um, get co-opted by this political class. Um, I know that at least the journalists who were interviewing me and and a lot of folks who are are frustrated that the political parties seem to be carrying on as usual. Um, and, and so they, I, I happened to be there when the Partido Popular was having its convention, and they were like, like, aquí no ha pasado nada, you know? Um, especially since it wasn't their governor, you know, the governor of their party that was toppled. But I, I think maybe the the pro Stego folks are in a little bit more of a scramble and a kind of power struggle internally. Um, but I don't, I don't see any of the political parties really reacting to the movement, you know, and, and I, but, but I think it's comical, like it's like they haven't gotten the message that everyone else has, and you know, uh, there was this uh, political slogan that was already before Maria used a lot of of se acabaron las promesas, you know, which I was always really fascinated by because I had no idea what it meant, who it was speaking to, what, you know, it was like just such a beautifully ambiguous uh, slogan. Um, and who, because it also is unclear, are you saying this to, to, to the gov to the person you're protesting or the institutions you're protesting this? Or are you saying this to Puerto Ricans, right? And it was a play on the promesa law all of this stuff, but so more and more I think that that phrase speaks to an awakening that the the, the promise that we had been decolonized, is no, you know, we weren't decolonized, um, the promise that the ELA was going to guarantee political, uh, I mean, uh, economic mobility and, and progress and modernity, that's over, but also the I think the statehood party has to realize that the promise of statehood in, in many ways also seemed to be over during this Trump moment, right? Where where again like all the quiet parts were said out loud because I mean it's not really that Trump is, is on his own is pouching, you know, the dream of statehood, right? But um, So I think that all those previous political formulas are over, but there's not a clear sense of what's gonna come next, you know? But again, that's, it's a a very, it's it's a moment that requires you to be courageous and bold and to say, well, I don't know what's gonna come next, but I'm not gonna stick with the devil I know, right? And so, I mean, that that courage was expressed this summer. Um, So I'm going to stay purposefully hopeful at a, hopeful and, and think that, uh, you know, and, and, and I'm so, I love this chap, this uh, paragraph that Jose picked out of the book. I didn't remember that. It feels like it was written after Ricky Renuncia and it was written way before. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I mean, a, a lot of people think that, that Ricky Renuncia came out of nowhere, no one could have predicted it, and yet, look, there's this, there's this chapter, there's this paragraph right there,
2: you know, so thank you, Sarah, and, thought about that paragraph yeah. so it feels like after so after the hurricane and then after the revolts of the summer then um the Asamblea Ciudadana started happening and then people started sort of trying to get together and figure out what are the demands that we need to put forward and now there is Victoria Ciudadana which is sort of an effort to do some sort of electoral initiative with people from the ground and they're trying to recruit women in the communities to run and, and a lot like they're trying to focus a lot on people who were responding after the hurricane we had a lot of that and women were the people who came out to feed everyone women were the people that went out to rebuild women were the ones that came out to organize um, <coughs> and uh, so right now there is a little bit of that but it's still not it's still very like early because so they're trying to do some of that work to run in the next election, but it's like it's starting. Um, it, it feels to me like this book is gonna need like a second part. <laughs> we need like a like a a, a part two of, after shots of disaster. But I wanted to. I wanted well, that's gonna be my self-author.
3: But I'll be right. <laughs> the
2: next, the next, uh, yeah. Contribution. Can you? Um. This this book is just full of of beautiful. Things. But I imagine that you have like some parts that are more near to your heart that it's,
3: like, it's I love like all of my children equally. <laughs> but um but I will I'm gonna like, yeah, yeah, share. Well let me later. let me actually just point to a few that we haven't talked about so far. I'm not gonna claim favorites As <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I will say I love the lists, maybe that might be my favorite. Yeah. But um there's a chapter on the on um, radio after Maria that I think is really important because it and it, and it brushes upon this is of the three things that I think are missing, the second one is the problem of gender violence. Um, and so, and, and we do, we are gonna address that in the Spanish version. Um, but in the chapter on radio, Sandra um, Rodríguez uh, talks about, you know, in this moment where there was no internet, no TV, no cell phone, no electricity, but people had battery operated radios and solar powered radios, and, and the radio was essential in providing a lifeline for a lot of people that were uh, really on their own. We have a chapter on the death toll, of course, and on the uh, on the role of, of local journalists in uncovering that, you know, and pushing back against the idea that there were 16. I know you're joking. That <laughs> there were just 16 dead. Um, Eduardo Lalo, amazing um, novelist, and so uh, and uh, in this, and the uh, the section on the representation of disaster. There's also a really interesting piece about this con this this. Narrative that circulated about our fellow American citizens and about how you know the, how uh, politicians and corporations like Walmart and all of these uh, you know po- po- political messages that circulated. Of we must help Puerto Ricans because they're U.S. citizens. And so Frances Negron Montaner, she talks about you know the complicated politics of that of how what does it mean to be asserting this non-consensual citizenship. And to be also suggesting that it's only citizens that deserve aid, you know, and that it's only through their citizenship that Puerto Ricans can become legible, you know, and and, and legible as kind of humanitarian crisis um, to to a U.S. public. So I, that's that's definitely a big
2: challenge. That that feels, that part feels, um, it's interesting to me that. When, so that when the hurricane happened, which is something that you mentioned before, in terms of when people started talking about statehood versus independence versus ELA, the narrative when we were growing up of if we're independent... We're gonna die we're gonna starve to death right like that's what's gonna happen and then the hurricane happened and then people actually died and some people died because they didn't have clean water to drink which was something basic right but in puerto rico there was always the narrative that we were different from latin america from those countries right that were like those caribbean countries and those latin american countries we're not like that we we're part of the United States, right? But the hurricane and the devastation that happened afterwards place us in a reality that it was boring for a lot of people, right? So 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 the, what you're bringing up right now, that idea, is just so relevant to that thought of. So who are we at the end of the day? Yeah. We are we are called fellow Americans by, by some people, and uh, and think because we have citizenship, and at the same time we're less than, always. We are not equals, we are not partners, we are something else, right? Yeah, yeah. So,
3: well, in, in, in
2: the other book I'm writing, like,
3: <laughs> I talk about how her, what her, all that Hurricane Maria revealed. Um, and so, to, to a, a U.S. public it revealed our citizenship and our territorial status. Um, to Puerto Ricans, it revealed that we were a colony to some. some many already knew it and had spent their whole lives, uh, you know, decrying it and struggling against it. Um, and they they couldn't feel validated, you know. <laughs> um, and to some, it, it revealed the great poverty in Puerto Rico. That was something that was also talked about a lot. That people were like, oh, behind the tr- those trees there is a slum, who knew? You know. Yeah. Of course, the people who lived there knew quite well, right? lot of people have been talking about is how both the hurricane and the economic crisis revealed that we are Caribbean. You know that that we are in this pathway of hurricanes. That we also experience the things that we thought only other those other islands experience, like uh, water rationing or power outages or long lines and all these things. Um, So I think that there's ways in which you know in. The person that Naomi quotes in her book, in, in her film, you know, said, Maria fu una gran maestra. You know, Maria taught us a lot of things, and, and, and we're still learning, learning from her, yeah. Yep, no,
2: we'll continue.
3: Transforming Puerto Rico because it, for me it was really important to not just sit in in the disaster right, but to think about what are the ways in which we are transforming Puerto Rico. And so that, that we have their uh, you know practitioners and activists and, and academics studying the different uh, community responses to the storm. Is there one uh, favorite poem
2: that you have that you would read
3: for us? I know I won't read it. I won't read, <laughs> okay, yeah, read it. Okay, yeah, I can. You read it. okay.
2: I can... Okay, I'm gonna do... I oh, this is so beautiful. Um, which chapter is this? Oh, this is this is from the play. Can I, I read a little bit What page? I mean, can we get a page? 58. 50, 58. I'm gonna read it a little bit, just, um, just to hear it. Marvillo grande <inaudible> de mi amor Creciente, encantadora, tsunami exquisito de pasión. Tu amor me envuelve como hola, ay que hola. Al otro día de María, al despertar los vecinos con hacha, machete y pico, abrimos nuevos caminos, caminos. Y levantamos escombros y compartimos comida, pero para buscar el agua hicimos tremenda fila, ay que fila. Así que le he demostrado quien levantó nuestra tierra, la gente trabajadora, que somos una jodienda,
0: jodienda.
3: Playwrights, the teatreros who created um, this play. You know, this play was performed in every municipality in Puerto Rico and in, and in, in several parts of the diaspora. Um, and there, it was for this book the first time that it was transcribed. You know, because it was something also that they adapted at each, you know, at each locality. And so this is the kind of you know find the, the publishing of it. And they're very excited that it was translated. They're like. Oh, now this play could be performed in English in some somewhere, maybe in Chicago. Hint, hint. Um, but there was also like this was part, one of the hardest things to translate because they had so much uh, wordplay, um, and so it, and and the, the actors and the playwrights they love the footnotes because the footnotes would explain, for example, that when someone says yo soy un palito de ron, that palo is like a stick but also a drink, and like you know, so they. they that and and that last line, we somos una jodiendo um, the translator the translator had suggested something like we were, we're the best and and they're like no no, no, que somos <laughs> lo mejor que somos <laughs> una jodiendo and so they translated it into all the shit. I what I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah, the translator
2: for sure. Yeah, Well, yeah. that's beautiful. other part. Um I I would love to open the space for questions from people about the book, about the, about the journey of writing it, um, or anything that people want to know, I don't want to be the only one asking questions. Mm-hmm. Anybody has questions or comments? Yeah. Do you observe any
3: difference
1: between generations, the younger generation, the older generation, when you, you talk to them about the reaction to the old situation?
3: To, to Maria or to, or to the summer movement? No. or to the after whole thing. after, yes, after Maria. Yeah, yeah um, I think that, uh, you know, I, I feel like the the, the, the the people that I find most interesting to talk to right now are the young people and then the old people. Um, and so I think a lot, of, like my grandparents, my grandmother, and people of that generation, many of them were like, well, you know, we, we grew up without constant electricity. Right. And, electricity. The and so I feel like, We were able to adapt in a particular way, and then um, I think you know, young people have become so galvanized in Puerto Rico. I am just in awe of them. I I think that my generation, for my generation, the promises were over. You know, I left Puerto Rico to go to grad school because I wanted to study something that wasn't offered at at the universities and and, in Puerto Rico, but I left with this confidence that I was coming back to a job in Puerto Rico, you know, like it didn't even occur to me but that was impossible. That is absolutely not the case for young people now. Like young people now leave for like a one-week internship, and they're worried they might never come back. You know. So um, their their understanding of, of their their possibility, that the the future that is possible for them in Puerto Rico, um, and how it's an indebted future, how it's an unguaranteed future, and it's also uh, for them. Uh, 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 um, Less of a kind of American dream future, you know, and so I think that Maria, you know, just hardened that belief, and in many ways that made possible the summer movement. Yeah, and so I think that the generations in between, like, well, I don't know, I, I hear like the, the 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 generations younger than me. They constantly complain about those older than me, those boomers. I am so boomers, you know. So like the, the boomers are imagined to be the, the conservative class, and they're they're the ones that like you know. Um, uh, got us into debt. They're the ones that believed all this, you know, poppy talk about us being decolonized. And luckily, my generation, the Gen X, were just like, we're just like lame. Like, we didn't like, we didn't know what was going on, but we also didn't like contribute that much, you know. Um, we, and I think we went in terms of governors, we kind of went, you know, Ricky was a millennial governor. We didn't really have a Gen X governor. Um, and so I, 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 see, I see that, I, but I'm really interested in that uh, kind of engagement with the boomers because for, for me, I thought the well, boomers, great, the 60s, because the X, I mean, I, my experience of the university was different than yours. There actually weren't that many strikes when I was in college. Mm-hmm. It was, uh, you know, uh, my generation didn't see that much political activity <laughs> until Vieques. But when I was already in grad school, um before vehicles and I was not in What year were you in where you in I graduated in ninety six. Oh yeah, UPR. So, Okay. Yeah, So so there weren't that many strikes. <laughs> Yeah, there weren't that many strikes there were strikes in the '80s, but like I was in
2: this like kind of. So right yeah. when you left, I came in and there was a lot of strikes. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it had accumulated. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. that's when that's when all the Disney the World legend that coming in and privatization and then, then, right. then, then there was the Frente contra la privatización and la Ubi and then there was like a wave of like strikes and protests. Um, yeah. 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 Oh, okay.
3: yeah. So. So for, yeah, so for me, the 60s represented the time of Roy Brown, of, you know, Alacupi, yeah. La yeah. get rid of the RODC. so for I'm me, the, the boomers were like this important political class that I thought, I thought my generation wasn't living up to, you yeah. know? But so now these younger folks, and that's the third thing that's missing from the book is a queer perspective. Mm. Um, I yeah. feel like I, I see these young people, they're thinking in much more radical ways, in much more inclusive ways, much more intersectional ways. They're also thinking about uh, race in a different way. Um, and, and, and so I, I, I see them definitely as more more politicized. And I get I get their frustrations with the boomers. Um, and they're kind of normative, you know, heteronormative, et cetera, uh, yeah. political projects. Yeah, so sure. I, I I sit quietly observing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes, sorry. Um, a lot of people in Puerto Rico who applied for FEMA help got
2: Can denied. you speak a little louder so everybody can hear you? Yes. <laughs> so a lot of people that applied for FEMA
3: help in Puerto Rico got denied because they didn't have the proper paperwork to. That the houses or the or the land was theirs, um, and they got denied, and because of the denial, of the help, a lot of people were forced to come to the United States and seek help. So, what happened to these properties and the people that were not able to rebuild? Are they that they lose their properties for good? I mean, because Puerto Rico has always been. Uh, built on family, on word of mouth, you know what I mean? and a lot of people lost that because of not having the proper documentation and FEMA denied. Was that a strategic that the government used to grab land in Puerto Rico? So there's a lot going on, and it's still in play. Um, and there's, there was a lot of, uh, of political... Of uh, rezoning plans um, that were being, you know, proposed, uh, because there's there's a lot going on. So part of it is that now a lot of, of areas that used to not be flood zones have been declared flood zones, and 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 people have started to receive eviction notices that they have to move out. Uh, of course, it's impoverished communities that are told that they have to move out of flood zones. While you know uh, wealthier communities are able to build right on the on the coast, and um, they 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 are able to take out insurance or mitigate or you know it, all these things, so those people who are losing their land, they, they might be you know these, that doesn't mean that that someone else. Possibly build there or develop something there. Um, in terms of the, the family lands, and 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 there's also alternative forms of property ownership in Puerto Rico, like community trust etc. Those folks are feeling a lot of pressure to to uh, give up their alternative property models. Surprise, um, and to uh, get titles on their properties. And this is something that is uh, being done i promoted throughout the Caribbean where family land is a very common thing. Um, and part of what people are told is like, oh, no, but this is better for you. You wanna be, you know, you wanna have your title. And in Puerto Rico, you don't need to. It's not illegal to not have a property title. Um, but they're being told to do that, and part of what that allows you to do is to mortgage your property. Right? um so at the same time that is denying you assistance a lot of people they only qualify for loans they're also trying to make sure that you enter into a titleization regime or you know a different property regime that will ensure your ability to take out debt and FEMa has has said um, you know internally and and, and in some ways, you know, publicly, that they are trying to change the legal culture in Puerto Rico and to get people to get their title rights. And it's really complicated because it's promoted by um, philanthropic organizations as something empowering and then they're like, oh, and like women can own their property and so, so it gets, you know, it, it gets funneled through some progressive language um, that makes it sound like something really good, but in the end it's imposing a different property regime. It also makes it easier to
1: you can fighter and fight man, break up communities and then and there's a lot of
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The Realtors are very real. Uh, there is the land Atlanta- also that in Puerto Rico now that you were talking about the zoning. And yeah. in the last, um, in the last month, I have seen ads from these uh, companies. It's like a developer company, the Realtors as well, and they are selling chunks of land in Puerto Rico that were protected or close to natural reserves. And they are announcing the construction of um, developed, like yeah, restored communities, and they're doing it in the coast, right? We know that we can't continue to build in the coast. Like everybody knows that at this point. But because of colonialism, because of this like wild capitalism that we are, this late stage capitalism where nothing matters anymore, right? Like, I mean, I'll build it, I'll sell it, I'll make a killing, and it will go away soon because the sea is just going to eat it. But they don't really care about that right now. Or about the environmental and ecological destruction that it's going to cause in the island, right? Um, they, they, there is no, they don't care about that because we're a colony, right? More questions? Yes.
0: Uh, I mean, I did, I'm, I'd imagine a lot of work and time and hours go into editing everything in this book. Was there anything that, as you were editing, just gave you pause that was just very difficult? Uh, maybe it was like something that was written that kind of almost transported you into the mind of the writer? Was there anything that just was very hard to, to edit down? Yeah. I, I. Well,
3: first I have to say that I had a team. And I had my co-editor, and um, I had a graduate assistant at uh, Rutgers, who was from Australia. And uh, she, she read every piece and, 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 you know, gave all the authors' comments. And she was, you know, we, we wanted someone who wasn't Puerto Rican because we were all so close to the material, you know. So it's like you know, tell us what we haven't explained, and the shorthand we use, the things that don't make sense, and and she was amazing, and she was really moved by a lot of the chapters, and I also had another assistant who was just in charge of emailing all the authors, and then we had this spreadsheet, because we we turned this book around, like, this is record timing, you know, the conference took place a year, you know, a year after Maria, the book comes out the second year, which is I know it seems like a long time, but it's really fast, especially for academics. Um, so, so we had this whole spreadsheet of like who's turned it in, who's gotten their comments, who's like sent it to copy editing, and all this stuff. And and had assistant just do that. Um, in terms of the editing, I mean, I think I think maybe Patricia's um, chapter um, I love. I just not that it was hard, but that I just love reading it. Um, it is, and she. To, this is the one that's about the psychological and legal assistance, and she also um, talks. I'm really taken, and, and, and I'm actually going to write with Patricia about this. There's this woman um, who keeps her own uh, diary that she shows in FEMA about her losses and all of that, and so I was really interested in thinking more about how I've, I've always been interested in how folks think of themselves as historical actors and narrators and subjects of history. So anytime someone kind of chronicles their history and recognizes their own historical importance, I'm always really fascinated by that and and about the pictures that she took and, and, and the, the way that she narrated and the diaries that she kept. And, and Patricia told me that there were a lot, that she saw this a lot of a lot of people uh, documenting their loss uh, because FEMA was not documented. You know, so so in the face of a kind of rejection, literal rejection of your losses, um, I was taken by how people were documenting that, and, and they would keep um, like shoe boxes of pictures and, and all these things. So that's something that I want to explore more. Thank you so much,
2: Demir. This is gift Actually, but particularly to us um uh, of Puerto Rico and the stand. Um we're really
1: grateful for this and we're looking forward to the next book Vendere Vencina. So before they I really want you to give both of this was a wonderful discussion. It was not prepared, it was all spontaneous it was so engaging. Thank you, Rosala.
0: If you want to connect with the podcast, follow us at Paseo Podcast on Facebook and Twitter. Visit our website, baseomedia.org. that's P-A-S-E-O Media.org, and email us at baseopodcast at gmail.com, that's P-A-S-E-O Podcast at gmail.com. I always love reading listener comments and topic suggestions, so keep those coming.